we're going to do verses uh, 1 through 17 this morning. Now we're going to come back and do verses 10 through 17, probably in the next couple weeks again. There's a lot to say in verses 10 through 17. So we're going to take one direction of it today, and then we're going to come back a different week and hit some more of it and get a little more detailed into some of the stuff there in verses 10 through 17. Now with that being said, uh, the first five verses here of Luke 13 are some really, really tough verses. Some tough verses to really stop and see what the application is and say, wow, Lord, what are you trying to tell us through this? So with that being said, let's jump right into this. Verse 1 of Luke 13. It says, There were present at the season some who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And Jesus answered and said to them, Do you suppose that these Galileans were worse sinners than all their Galileans because they suffered such things? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse sinners than all the other men who dwelt in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Tough passages. Because what we're dealing with here is two very tragic situations. Verse 1, Pilate. Now, when you look at Pilate from a biblical standpoint, Pilate almost comes across as this naive guy that really didn't know what was going on. Okay, I think Jesus is innocent. I washed my hands of this man's blood. When you look at Pilate from that perspective... He doesn't look all too bad. Problem is, Pilate, from an historical perspective, he was a nasty guy. Very nasty man. In fact, one of the things that he would used to do is when the Jews would get together in a large group, is that he would send Roman soldiers out dressed up as Jewish people. And then when these Jews started talking about revolt or etc., he would just send those soldiers in and slaughter them. And another thing that he did here in verse 1, and we can pull this together from the context, is these Galileans were doing some type of revolt, so Pilate had them killed and mixed their blood in with the sacrifices. This man was a very nasty man. So the question comes up to Jesus, why did this happen? Why did this happen to these people? And then the other question comes up in verse 4, Jesus brings it up. There was this tower by the pool of Siloam, and this tower just happened to fall down, fell on 18 people, and killed them. Why? These are tough, tough verses because it leads to these questions. Why did this happen to me? Did I do some type of horrible sin where God is trying to judge me? Why did this happen to my loved one? Was there something going on in their life or my life that I've done to cause this horrible event to happen to me? That's what we go to. When something bad happens in life, we stop there and we say, Lord, what did I do wrong to deserve this? What did they do wrong to deserve this? See, that's not the point of these five verses. The point of these five verses is that's man's way of dealing with it. Jesus' way of dealing with it is, wait a second, we're all sinners. Did you catch in verse 2, were they any type of worse sinner? No, they weren't any type of worse sinner. Verse 4, were they some type of worse sinner? No. The answer is found in verse 3. I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Verse 5, I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. point is, Jesus is saying is, quit trying to figure out who is the worst sinner. They got the judgment on them, and just accept the fact, you're all sinners. Now, before that sounds harsh, we're going to get to grace and mercy here in a second. But the point is, Jesus says, you spend your life analyzing and comparing. And really, Jesus says, we're all sinners. That's the point that he's trying to make. We sit there and we watch the news and we hear about these tragic accidents. We see these horrible news reports and we sit there and we say, Lord, why? Why did this happen? I got a little phrase I like to use. It's called flat tire. We're all going to get a flat tire in life. And that flat tire can be symbolic of anything. 
There's going to be a time in your life where something unexpected happens and it derails your life. It throws you off course and you stop and you say, Lord, why? Why did I not get the job? Why did I lose the job? Why did I not get the girl? Why did I get the girl? You know, it kind of goes whatever ways. Sometimes it's a literal flat tire. I remember a few years ago, I had a counseling session over in Finley. Uh, I was doing some counseling with a married couple that was having problems. And on the way to the counseling session, got a literal flat tire. So pulled off along the side of the road and got this literal flat tire. I have to share a real side story that doesn't do with the message, but it always reminds me when I do this. Pulled off the side of the road, got this flat tire, and I was looking at the clock going, I'm going to be late. I'm not going to be able to make it to this, this appointment. This marriage is really in trouble, and I really wanted to be there to help out. And I said, Lord, wouldn't it be neat? And you may remember the story. Wouldn't it be neat, Lord, if you sent somebody from church and that would swing by, see the situation I'm in, and that they would stop and then help out? And I, and I, I pray that, and I'm not exaggerating in any moment whatsoever. I look down the road, and I see somebody from church. They had a very recognizable car, a very unique car, so you knew it was them. So they come, and they come right past me. I wave, they wave, and they keep on going. So I told that story one time, and that person came up to me afterwards and said, Was that you? I said, Yeah, was that you? And they said, Yeah. And I said, Thanks. Um, True story. Point, though, is had the flat tire. I couldn't make it to the appointment in time. Now, let's stop and analyze that. Was this some divine thing? Was I going to get there and say something wrong and make the marriage worse? Or was it one of those things where I convinced myself of this, Lord, in your infinite wisdom, that they're probably going to go, we were meeting at a restaurant, I said, they're probably going to meet themselves and, and have this wonderful conversation once they're waiting, and there's going to be a great healing that happens. So I talked to them afterwards, and I said, hey, I got the flat tire, sorry. And they said, that's okay. I said, how did it go? I mean, did you guys get a chance to talk? And they said, actually, we argued so much, we didn't order food, and we left. So what was the divine? See, that's the thing. We sit here, and we start saying, Why? Now, the flat tire, that's a funny story, but what about more serious things? What about when it's dealing with a loved one? What happens when it's dealing with your health? Lord, why? Now, we can sit here and we can have this great spiritual argument. You can come with your life problem and saying, why did this happen to me? Why? Why did the tower fall? Lord, why? So, one person can up, sit up there and say, well, it's nothing. We live in a fallen, cursed world where fallen, cursed things happen, and this is a result of sin. The other person can stop and say, nope, nope, Romans 8, 28, and all things God works for the good. So God is working something good out in your life. Then the other person can come back and say, well, hey, according to Luke 13, the tower just fell. So we can sit here and debate this left and right, and guess what? The person suffering is just standing there. See, we have to get the big picture. The big picture is not Jesus answering why. He never answers why these horrible events happen in verses 1 through 5. He just says, you're all sinners and you're all going to perish. Now, if you would stop right there with the message, it sounds really harsh. Like I said, we're going to get to grace and mercy, but that's the first point. We're all, none of us are innocent. We're all guilty. All of us guilty. Problem is we sit there and we say, I'm not that bad. And I would agree, you're not bad. You're actually horrible and evil because that's biblical truth. See, the reason I think I'm not that bad is because I compare myself to a standard set by other humans. I'm not bad. I'm not a bad father. I'm not a bad husband. I'm not a bad pastor. I'm not a bad man. Because when I go flip on the news, I see horrible men and fathers and husbands. So according to that standard, I'm a whole lot better than them. 
But the problem is we're comparing ourselves to the standard of man. What is the standard of God? Turn, if you will, to Romans 3. In Romans 3, you get probably the most honest description of what mankind is in the Bible. Romans 3, please. Romans 3. Verse 9. Let's start in Romans 3, verse 9. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. There's no better or worse. We're all sinners. For we have all previously charged, both Jews and Greeks, that they're all under sin. So that's an important point. We're all sinners. We're all going to perish. And that's the point that Jesus is trying to make in Luke 13. We're sitting here and saying, what did these people do so bad to deserve that fate? What did these people do so bad to deserve that accident? Jesus says, no, 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 no. We're all sinners. Since you're all sinners, we're all going to perish. What is the description of man? Verse 10. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. See, now some of us stop after verse 11 and say, no, that's not true. I seek after God. I looked at that and I analyzed my life and an honest assessment of my life is I seek after God in moments of my life. I wish my life was one continual seeking after God. But it's not. It's seeking after pleasure. It's seeking after self-fulfillment. It's seeking after me. Verse 12, they have all turned aside. They have all together become unprofitable. There is no one who does good. No, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery on their ways. They a way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That is the description of man. We're not bad. We're horrible, we're filthy, we're evil. When we compare ourselves to the standard of other men, we don't look bad. But when you compare yourself to the perfection standard of Christ, we see the sin that we are. Now, we could stop right there, once again, and still feel bad. Let's stay in Romans for a little bit. Go to Romans 5, please. Romans 5. So we're sinners, we're evil, we're horrible... But look at God. Romans 5, verse 6. For when we were still without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. He still died for me even though I was ungodly. Verse 7. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love towards us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. See, even though I'm horrible and evil, Jesus still died for me. What an amazing thing. He still died died. So I can sit here and say, woe is me. The Bible just creates this picture that I'm this horrible, filthy, evil person. Yeah, it does. But then the Bible also says God loves you so much that he died for you. What an amazing picture that is. What an absolutely amazing picture. Now, let's bring this back full circle. I'm a horrible, nasty, evil person. So the reason these bad things happen in my life is because I'm a horrible, nasty, evil person. Well, we're horrible, nasty, evil people living in a horrible, nasty, evil world. See, go to Romans 8, please. Romans 8. I'm a sinner living in a fallen world. And there are problems in this fallen world that are caused by humans. Pilate mixing the blood with the Galileans. There's problems in this world that are not caused by humans. The tower falling. There's problems all around, left and right. 
How do I find this balance? Romans 8, verse 18, please. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Stop there for a second. It's important to note that in verse 18, this world is full of suffering. This world is completely full of suffering. If you're trying to find peace in this world apart from Jesus Christ, you will not, cannot find it. This world's a tortured place to live in and to be. And this is not what God's original intentions were. If you go back to Genesis 1 and 2, you see God's original plan. Garden of Eden, perfection, beauty, majesty. We as humans brought sin into the world. Now this did not shock nor surprise God. And he made the fix through Jesus, and that's what eternity is. But this world is suffering. I think sometimes as Christians, we get shocked and surprised when we suffer in this world. This is what the world is. Because look at verse 18. There is a glory that is coming. That's heaven. That's what we wait for. And how do we wait for it? Verse 19. For the earnest expectation of creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. We eagerly wait for this eternity. For the creation was subject to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope, because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. The whole creation, the earth is groaning. The earth is falling apart too. We are a fallen people living in a fallen world. The earth groans for redemption to get out of this curse and God will create a new heaven and new earth. We, as human beings, groan to get out of this curse because we're sinners and we want something bigger and better, the expectation of heaven. So with that being said, there is suffering in this world. There are horrible things that happen in this world. And Jesus says, we all perish because we're sinners. But he says, even though you may perish because of your sin, he says, I still love you. He demonstrates his love by dying on the cross. This cursed, fallen world he still loves us enough. I heard a pastor say this one time, and I never forgot it. He says, we say phrases like uh, heart disease or cancer. And he always says, heart disease and cancer, they don't kill you. Sin is what kills you. The rest of the stuff speed up the process. Sin is the death blow to us and to this world, and that's what we struggle with. So with that being said, jumping back now to Luke, these people perished because of sin. God still loves us. Now, if we're such horrible people... Why doesn't the judgment happen now? Well, because the Bible also says this. Two verses to write down, and these are important verses. First one is 2 Peter 3.9. 2 Peter 3.9. The other one is Ezekiel 33.11. Ezekiel 33.11. 2 Peter 3.9 says that God is patient with us, not willing that any should perish. And Ezekiel 33.11 says that God has no joy in the death of the wicked, that He wants them to repent. See, isn't that kind of sad? Sometimes as Christians... We rejoice in the death of the wicked. Sometimes as Christians, we lose patience with the non-believers. God doesn't. So even though we're horrible, filthy, evil, God still has patience with us. He still has love for us. He still wants fruit from us. Which takes us into our segue, verses 6 through 9. Verse 6, it says, He also spoke this parable. A certain man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. Then he said to the keeper of his vineyard, Look, for three years I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree and found none. Cut it down. Why does it use it up on the ground? So he answered and said to him, Sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and fertilize it. And if it bears fruit, well. But if not, after that, you can cut it down. See, here's the picture. This idea of this fig tree. 
Now, if you want to do a further study on it, some people believe this fig tree represents uh, Israel. Isaiah 5 kind of talks about this. And if it does, there's an interesting uh, typology here. Because look in verse 7. And then he said to the keeper of his vineyard, Look, for three years I've come seeking fruit. Jesus' public ministry lasted three years. So maybe there's a picture there of this being Israel and the fig tree and Jesus and his ministry. But this also is a bigger picture of you and I. God desires fruit from us. That's what he wants. And as you read through this, he's seeking fruit. He wants something from us. Now, I run into a lot of Christians that, that keep it simple, and I don't disagree with it. They simply say, well, God loves me. God does love you. I think that's great. I think that's wonderful. But there's a next step after that. God loves you, no matter what state you're in, but he then also wants fruit and obedience because of that. Now, we've got to be careful. Just because we do things, we do works, those works don't save us. We do these works because we're saved in Christ. We've got to remember that. But God expects fruit from us. That's the expectation that he wants. He died for us. He loves us. But now what are we doing for him? Just jump over to John real quick. John, one book to the right. John 15, please. Let's talk about this idea of desiring fruit. Christ did die for us. He loves us even though we're sinners. And now the expectation is since he's done this for us, what can we do for him? John 15, verse 1, please. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me, and I in him, bears much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered, and they gather them and throw them into the fruit, and they are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. See, the goal there is verse 8, that we bear fruit for the Lord. This idea of doing things for him. We've got to be careful as Christians when we stop and we see what the Lord has done for us. The first five verses of Luke has established the fact we're sinners, and we deserve to be perished for our sins. Romans shows us how bad of a sinner we are, but then Roman also shows us the love that God has for us. That should motivate us to move in our life to do things for Him. Too often as Christians, we just rest on our laurels and not doing anything. God loves me. Well, what are you going to do about that? I want to go out and produce fruit for him. I want to go out and be a light and a witness for him. I want to be motivated to do something. Stay in John 15 and just go to verse 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. Once you've experienced and tasted the love of God and the salvation he has given you, the result of that is that changes how you live and how you act and what you do and motivates you to go live a life for him. To produce fruit for him. Now this all sounds great, fine and dandy, but why don't we do it? Why don't we do it? Back in Luke 13, gives us three reasons why we don't do it. Jump to back to Luke 13, let's start in verse 10 here. Three reasons on why we don't go out and do this. Verse 1, excuse me, excuse me, verse 10 of Luke 13. Now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And behold, there was a woman who had a spirit of infirmity 18 years and was bent over and could in no way raise herself up. And when Jesus saw her, he called to him and said to her, Woman, 
You are loosed from your infirmity. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight and glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue answered with indignation because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath. And he said to the crowd, There are six days on which men ought to work. Therefore, come and be healed on them, and not on the Sabbath day. The Lord then answered him, said, Hypocrite, does not each one of you on the Sabbath loose his ox or his donkey from the stall and lead it away to water it? So ought not this woman, being a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan is bound, think of it, for 18 years be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath. When he had said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame, and all the multitude rejoiced for all the glorious things that were done by him. Now we're going to come back and actually do this, verses 10 through 17, in the future, in another week here, because there's so much good stuff in this. But... In the context that we're talking about today, there's three things in here that keep us from fruit. First off, this idea of healing on the Sabbath. We've got to explain this real quick. Remember, Sabbath is sundown Friday to sundown Saturday. According to Jewish law, and I note this is not biblical law, this is Jewish law. If somebody had a horrific injury on the Sabbath, the most you were allowed to do is just bandage it up to keep it from bleeding. That's all you were allowed to do. So, God forbid, one minute after sundown on Friday, your arm nearly gets cut off. The most they could do is just bandage your arm up, and you'd have to wait 24 hours to after sundown on Saturday, and then they could try to go to the next step to try to help you. That's a dumb law. This is not a God-given law. This is a man's law. So what happens is when Jesus heals this woman, this guy in verse 14, he is furious because Jesus broke the law. Which the more I study out Jesus, the more I realize Jesus is breaking laws left and right. He's touching lepers. He's touching withered hands. He's dealing with women he shouldn't be dealing with. I mean, aren't you thankful that Christ is willing to do that? And that's a deeper point of this passage, which we're going to have to get to at a later point because we don't have time today, is Christ healed this woman. That's an amazing thing. But there's three things. Three things in this passage that keep us from producing fruit. The first thing you see is the infirmity. Now, we don't know what was wrong with this woman. And I think it was kind of generic that way. Because I think you can plug in what keeps you. Now, think about it. What is in your life that keeps you from producing the fruit that you should for the Lord? Maybe there is a sin. Maybe there's a sin that you know you shouldn't be doing, but you're doing it. And it keeps you. Maybe it's not necessarily a sin. Maybe it's harboring feelings of bitterness and anger towards things. Maybe it's harboring bitterness towards God over things that you thought he should have, could have done differently. Maybe it's not a sin of something you're doing. Maybe it's a sin of something you're supposed to be doing and you're not doing it. Whatever it is, there's probably an infirmity in your life that bends you over and binds you up and keeps you from producing fruit from the Lord. Why don't we go out and be a witness more? Why don't we go out and change the world more for Christ? This infirmity keeps us from that. Who is the only one that can heal you of that? Jesus. You are loosed from that infirmity, verse 12. What a beautiful picture of saying, Okay, Lord, I don't want anything in my life to keep me from doing everything I can for you because of some sin or some bondage that I'm in. No, I don't want that. That's one reason that we don't produce the fruit we should. Number two, verse 14. Why don't we also produce the fruit we should? A legalism. This guy here in verse 14, this guy is not the type of guy you want to hang around with. I don't think this guy would be a lot of fun. This guy is not just mad. He is furious. Furious. On the Sabbath, Jesus had the audacity to heal a woman. And what did he do? Jesus just said, verse 12, Woman, you are loose from your infirmity. My goodness, that's all he did. This guy is that angry. Why is he that angry? Because there's a hint of legalism here. 
Legalism will steal your joy. Legalism is where you create an image, a rule, a law, a standard that has to be applied to the people in your life and you. And this may not be a God-given standard. It's something you create. You'll never be able to live up to that expectation. Legalism just completely steals joy. I'll give an example of this. You know, Dawn and I do the tithe. We like to give out here, obviously. But a few months ago, or last year, I think it was, I thought I wanted to do something a step more than that. So I just created this little idea that when I have change in my pocket, that when I get back to my office, I'm going to take that money that's in my pocket and just put it in this dish that I have. And then just something extra, just a little bit here and there. And so then after time when that builds up, I'll go, you know, cash in and just give it to the Lord. Just something little. You know, just to kind of go above and beyond just to say, Lord, thank you. So I get back to my office, check my pockets. If I got any money in there, I just put it in the dish, and I just kind of go on. Okay, I think that's a good idea. I like it. Well, what happened one time, I went up to the gas station here in Hamler, and I bought something. And I bought something, and I gave him a 20, got the change and stuff, put it in my pocket, got back to my office. So I go back into my office, I stick my hand in, grab the coins to throw in there, and I look, and I thought, I have money in here. So I pulled out, and I got the change left over from that 20, about 16-some bucks. And I sat there, and I thought, well, you know, the rule I made was I was going to put the money that was in my pocket into that change thing. Well, I meant change. I didn't mean cash. And so I sat there, and I thought, well, Lord, you know I meant change. I didn't just mean money. I mean, I may have said, Lord, the money in my pocket I'm going to do, but I think we all understood that didn't mean dollar bills. That meant just change. And I had this legalistic moment of this fun little thing I was doing of throwing a couple of quarters, throwing a couple of dimes, trust that the Lord expands it, now all of a sudden lost all its joy. Because I'm looking at a 10, a 5, and a 1, saying this was not what I wanted to do. The rule I created for myself became a burden to me and took the joy out. And if you want to know what happened, I kept the 10, 5, and 1. Okay, I'm a sinner. <laughs> so now I make sure anytime I go someplace, the dollar bills go right into my wallet and the change goes right into my pocket. Um, we've already established the fact we're sinners, all of us, you know. But the point is, and you see that with people that are legalistic. They make these rules, these standards, these laws. No one can keep up with them. I have found the more legalistic you are, generally the less joy you have in life. Because no one meets your standards. Non-believers, my goodness, they're the worst of the worst. Look at the way they dress. Look at the way they act. Look at the way they speak. We can't have people like that. Or even believers. You're a Christian. You're a Christian. And that's the way you do things? I've met people that have a real passion for the Lord. A real passion to see souls get saved. But they're also very legalistic. And you just don't want to be around them. Because the joy is just not there. I see this guy in verse 14. He just doesn't seem really joyful. A woman who has been burdened for 18 years got healed, if anything, at his synagogue, which... That's pretty cool. No. You healed on the Sabbath. That legalism took out the joy in his life. And just take a quick look at yourself. You may have little rules and standards and morals that you have created. And they may be good in a capacity. But don't add things to the Bible that then creates a legalism that steals the joy out of your life. And to be perfectly blunt, steals the joy of people around you. I know Christians that are sometimes difficult to be around them because you're always afraid to bring up certain topics. Because if you bring up the wrong topic, my goodness, it's not going to go good. So, legalism, that steals fruit. What's the last thing that steals fruit? Verse 15, one simple word, 
Hypocrite. Being a hypocrite steals fruit. Why? Because I want to go deeper in my walk and relationship with the Lord. I want to do things that I know are right, but the problem is I know there's a sin in my life, and so since there's sin in my life and I'm not dealing with it, I don't do anything for the Lord. I don't come to church because, you know, there's things that I don't like and there's things that are wrong, so instead of coming to church to get help, I just stay home. I don't do anything. I don't witness for the Lord because who am I to witness for the Lord? My life is such a mess and full of such sin, I don't even want to witness for the Lord because of it. I should read and pray, but... Gosh, look at me. Look how awful I am. What a hypocrite. Well, you know what? God loves hypocrites. As we established a few weeks ago out here, we're all hypocrites. Don't allow those things to keep you from producing fruit. If there's something in your life you know you need to change, then change it. Those three things will keep you from fruit in the Lord. Infirmities, bondage that we allow into our life that only Jesus can fix. Legalism, legalism that steals the joy of us and joy of others. And lastly, an hypocrisy of the life I'm living does not line up with God, and I know that, but instead of making the changes that need to be changed, I just don't do anything about it. Those things will steal the joy and the fruit right out of life. Basically, with this man in verse 14, he cared more about his rules than he did of helping people. Look at verse 16 one more time. So ought not this woman, being a daughter of Abraham... Whom Satan is bound, think of it, for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath. The greater good is this woman being healed. That's the greater good. Two passages to finish with and then we're done. First one is in Matthew 12, please. Matthew 12. Matthew 12. We have here in Matthew 12 another picture of Jesus healing on the Sabbath. But there's a great verse and phrase in here that we need to talk about. Matthew 12. Matthew 12, verse 9. And it says, When he had departed from there, he went into their synagogue, and behold, there was a man who had a withered hand. And they asked him, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath that they might accuse him? Basically, they're setting Jesus up. I've always looked at this passage and I said, I always wondered, they invite the withered hand guy to church? You know, hey, come, come to church. And did the withered hand guy think, boy, no one's ever shown me any attention, anything like that? Was this a setup? Verse 11. Then he said to them, what man is there among you who has one sheep, and if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will he not lay hold of it and lift it out? Basically, you say you're not allowed to work on the Sabbath, which God ordained, yes. But Jesus is saying, if one of your sheep falls in a pit, you're going to work to get that thing out because it's the greater good for the animal. Verse 12. Of how much more value, then, is a man than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and was restored as whole as the other. Then the Pharisees went out and plotted against him how they might destroy him. They were so furious over the withered hand being healed that, verse 14, they wanted to destroy Jesus. I have seen Christians who have their little legalistic rules get broken, and they are furious. They're furious. People are dying and going to hell, but they don't care about that because their little rule got broken. You healed a man on Sabbath? How dare you? Jesus is trying to say here, the greater good is helping that person come to know Christ. We've got to be careful about that. Because when our little rules and our little opinions get broken, how do we handle that? Do we try to see the greater good of what God is doing? Or are we just so frustrated and so upset, I can't believe it? Last passage to deal with this. Go to the book of Jonah. You probably know where I'm going with this, but Jonah, please. 
Now, as you're going to Jonah, a little background on Jonah. We know most of us know the story of Jonah getting swallowed by the big fish, but we don't know why, what happened to get there. God had called Jonah to go minister and to preach the gospel to the Ninevites. Well, Jonah didn't want to. He hated the people of Nineveh. He hated them so much he went the opposite direction. God had a storm come. Jonah got thrown off the boat. Jonah got swallowed by the big fish. And Jonah spent a few days in the fish getting a spiritual discipline here. God spewed him back out and then Jonah went and preached to Nineveh. Now, Jonah hated Nineveh. He hated him. Hated him so much that he would willfully disobey God because of his own personal opinion on the people of Nineveh. The Ninevites were awful, horrible people. They were known to make pyramids out of skulls of the people they defeated. These are awful people. But God loves awful people. We've already established that. So, God calls Jonah to do this. Jonah finally, in Jonah 3, after spending a few days in the belly of the fish, goes on and preaches his, his message. And lo and behold, what happens? Nineveh gets saved. Now that makes Jonah furious. Look at verse 10 of Jonah 3. God saw their works, that they turned from their evil way, and God relented from the disaster that he had said he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. They get saved. Jonah's response, verse 1 of chapter 4, It displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he became angry. Verse 2, So he prayed to the Lord and said, Ah, Lord, was not this what I said when I was still in my country? Therefore I fled previously to Tarshish. For I know that you are a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, one who relents from doing harm. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. This man had the greatest evangelistic crusade ever. No one can compare to it. The, the most amazing message that was preached Hundreds of thousands of people get saved, and his response is he's so angry, he'd rather die. Talk about a spiritually immature person. Can you imagine going into work, and let's say you worked at a factory, and let's say on your shift there was hundreds of people working. You felt led by the Lord, so you stand up in the break room or on the line, you get everybody's attention, you give them a gospel message, and hundreds of people come to know Christ. You go home to your spouse, and your spouse says, how was work? Awful. Why? Everybody got saved. I just want to die. Everybody got saved. That's Jonah. I mean, it, it makes no sense. And the reason it makes no sense is because Jonah's rule that he made for himself was Nineveh was beyond salvation. And so since Nineveh was beyond salvation, when God had the audacity to save Nineveh, and made him angry. Now, don't we do the same thing? Lord, my little rule got broken. I'm angry. I just don't want to go on anymore. Lord, this happened in life. This is not what I like. I just don't want to go on anymore. I can't go to church anymore because that rule got broken. I can't go talk to those people anymore because of what they said and what they did. I can't do it. Jonah was so worked up. Verse 3, I just want to die. And look at his prayer in verse 2. I know that you are a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abundant loving kindness, one who relents from doing harm. God, I knew you're so loving you would save him, and that makes me mad. So God comes back in verse 4, then the Lord says, is it right for you to be angry? Look at Jonah's response in verse 5. There isn't. God asked Jonah a question, Jonah didn't respond. Now, I don't know about you, but at the Irvin house, if we ask the boys a question, the boys don't respond, that, that's usually not going to go over real well. It's not going to go over well with Dawn, I'll tell you that right now. Jonah is so ticked that God wants to talk to him, and Jonah turns his back on God. That's big. Goes out, verse 5, 
makes himself a little shelter to look at the city, still hoping that God would curse it and burn it. Verse 6, the Lord God gives him a plant, and God's happy for the plant because it gives him a shade. And then what happens to those God setting them up? Verse 8, excuse me, verse 7, he gives him a worm that eats the plant. Plant dies. Verse 8, and it happened when the sun arose that God prepared to be him. East wind, and the sun beat on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. Then he wished death for himself, saying, It's better for me to die than to live. Jonah is an emotional mess. He really is. I look at verse 8, and it's like, okay, you're out in the sun. Your plant dies. Just move. He can't. You know why? He's so angry at Nineveh, he has to stand there and watch what happens to the town. I've run into people, and they'll come up like, this person frustrates me so much. Do you know what they're doing? No, I don't know what they're doing. It's not that big a deal. Well, they make me so angry. You just need to let it go. Just let it go. Don't, Don't worry anymore. Don't focus on it. They won't. They'll just keep watching that person. Just like Jonah, they should just leave. But they are so riled up by this person and what they're doing and what they're saying and how they're acting that they just can't let it go. So verse 8, it frustrates Jonah to the part of death. God sets him up perfectly. Verse 9, God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? And he said, it is right for me to be angry even to death. I have a right to be so angry about this even to death. Verse 10, the Lord said, you have had pity on the plant. For which you have not labored, nor made it grow, which came up in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which are more than 120,000 persons who cannot discern between their right hand and their left with much livestock? Basically, Jonah, you care more about the plant than you do the people. Back in uh, Matthew 12, you care more about the Sabbath than you do the withered hand. Luke 13, you care more about the Sabbath than you do the woman getting healed. Take a good hard look at yourself Make sure you're not walking in a legalism. That is, your own rules and standards where you have placed more value in something. Some possession, some thing, some idea, some animal, some religious idea. Than the simplicity of people coming to know Jesus Christ. That is the sole purpose of what matters. And when we put something in front of that, we are walking in some type of legalism and anger that, be quite honest will steal the joy out of your life. When you put Christ first, and that's what matters, there's a joy that He gives you that cannot be superseded. But when you allow other things to go before that, it takes the joy right out of it. Jonah was witness to the greatest crusade the world has ever seen. But he was more angry about a plant that died than possible souls going to hell. We've got to be careful about that. And what you see here in Luke 13... Let's put it all together. We're sinners. We're all sinners. But God still loves us, still died for us, is still patient with us. And then once we come to know Him, He wants fruit. What keeps us from having fruit? Infirmities that bind us up. Legalism and hypocrisy. We've got to be careful. We don't allow those three things to get into our life to keep us from being the men and women that God has called us to be. Glenn, if you want to come forward here for the final song.